The United States has retained a sense of being a new frontier, and will probably always feel that way. The Americas are uncharted water for the offshore wind industry, and while it's not quite the Wild West, it's certainly an exciting new market for companies like ours willing to get stuck into the energy transition. I'm Alex Steele, I'm a junior engineer starting my career in offshore wind with Kent. I'm joined by Andy Malpass, our US offshore wind market lead, who's embarking on the next big step in his career as he and his family relocate to Boston to lead Kent's presence in the US market. Born in Yorkshire and educated in Durham in the north of England, Andy has made London his home for the past 10 years. Like many in the industry, he's worked in both oil and gas and offshore wind and is now opening an office and building a team around him in Boston to brave a market that's gearing up for huge changes in the years to come. We discuss the energy transition, offshore wind and Andy's plans for the United States. So please indulge us as we dive deep into offshore wind. This is Spark Generation. I'm joined today by Andy Malpass, our offshore wind market lead in the United States. Andy, welcome to the Spark Generation podcast. Thanks a lot, Alex. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Regular listeners of our podcast will know that we like to start off by asking people to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they share and who they share their lives with. Uh, sure. So uh, I'm Andy Malpass. I'm a chartered mechanical engineer. Uh, I grew up in Yorkshire. Uh, I went to university uh, in Durham, uh, studied engineering there. Uh, I'm married to Katie, she's also an engineer. And we have a young son, Max, who's just over a year old, so he keeps us extremely busy at the moment. I'm sure he does. You've been with the company for about 10 years now, so that's with Legacy Atkins and now with Kent. Can you talk us through a little bit how you came into the industry, what you've done with the company, perhaps some career highlights? Sure. So... I started my career at the Welding Institute in Cambridge, uh, working in the structural integrity, uh, specifically assessment of defects and cracks in offshore structures and pipelines. Uh, we also did a lot of mechanical testing, so large-scale crack arrest tests, fatigue tests, fracture mechanics tests, uh, that kind of stuff, um, which was really good actually to see you know, the steel and the structures up close. I think most engineers secretly want to get into the workshop and get their hands a bit dirty. So it was nice to have a bit of variance from from being sat behind a desk. Um, but a few years later, I guess the, the bright lights of London started calling um, and I joined Kent or Atkins as it was at the time in their offshore business, uh, working on the integrity of, of oil and gas platforms originally, and then started to get involved in, in offshore wind. I guess in my nearly 10 years at, at Kent, I've been involved in engineering management, project management. Uh, I've been the team lead for the 30 Strong Structures team in London. Um, I've also been the operations group lead for our London office. Uh, and now I'm moved into a new role as the offshore wind market lead for the US, as, as you say. That sounds like actually quite a long journey from quite a very technical role into quite a more human-focused and more commercial role. Are you quite enjoying that? Um, yeah, definitely. I think I I think I think probably recognised quite um, early on in my career that I was never going to be um, 
a world-leading technical expert. Uh, I really enjoyed being involved in the technical work, but I, I also enjoyed the elements of project management and engineering management and, and working with teams uh, and working with the business, actually. I, I guess I got involved in operations management later in my career, uh, leading teams and leading operations, um, kind of really driving business performance in those areas. So I really, I've really enjoyed having a blended career path um, and that's what's kept me me interested in 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 the in the industry. Sure, yeah. And and as you see it, what was the role of market lead created for in the US? So the um, the role really is to strengthen our presence in the US, uh, especially on the East Coast, uh, where most of the projects are, are being developed at the moment uh, and drive growth in the in the market generally. We've we've got a great team based in Houston been supporting uh, both the offshore wind and the oil and gas market for, for a number of years. Um, and they've got a particular focus on, on floating structures, so floating offshore wind. Um, so I'm really driving the charge in kind of our consulting and fixed bottom design services. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think I think everyone I've spoken to in the company is quite jealous of the fact that you're getting to go out there and actually live the life out there. How's the move to Boston going? I imagine the family's beyond excited. Uh, yes. Um, well, it's been somewhat slower than I think any of us imagined. But um, yeah, pleased to say the, the paperwork's all in order now. So it's it's really within touching distance. Um, yeah, we're all really excited, both for the new city, the new country, um, kind of all the opportunities and adventures we can have together as a family. Um, looking forward to getting some proper snow in the winter, being close to the ski slopes. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very excited by that. But I'm also really excited about embedding myself in in the US offshore wind market and getting out there, meeting with developers, the supply chain. Um, so yeah, really keen to to get out there now and can't wait. Definitely. Have the family shown? Has Max shown any interest yet? Is he? He's a little young. Are you expecting? He's a little young. Yeah, he's 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 not shown any interest yet. Although he does, he does have a baseball that I they had when I visited the US a few years ago that he he enjoys playing with. But apart from that, he's not not showing any affiliation yet to to the country. No idea how lucky he is. <laughs> and you're perhaps ironically at the coal face of the energy transition. I understand you've spent a bit of time in oil and gas as well as in the offshore wind industry. How do you find the transition? How do you find the two industries compare? So for me, I think it was pretty easy. Um, I think there's a huge synergy between offshore oil and gas and offshore wind. I think you'll find a lot of the engineers have come from an oil and gas background. Um, I got involved in offshore wind alongside oil and gas at quite an early time in my career. So so it was quite an easy transition to make. Um, also, my background's in integrity management. And, and here is where we're seeing a huge opportunity to learn from the oil and gas industry when it comes to efficient O&M, life extension, decommissioning, that kind of stuff. The oil and gas industry, um, especially in the UK, has a lot of experience safely operating assets well beyond design life. And so we're, we're using that knowledge to our advantage now in offshore wind through things like risk-based inspections uh, and structural health monitoring to really help drive down the cost of, of O&M in offshore wind. Do you think you've noticed a cultural difference between the two industries? Um, good question. I mean, I think 
reflecting on my roles over the past few years, I guess we're seeing um, when engineers are coming into the business and the energy industry generally, I think there's there's a lot more interest in, in getting involved in in renewables projects. Um, I think it's probably seen as um, a bit more exciting um, than kind of working in uh, working on rusty oil and gas platforms. But actually, what 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 we're seeing when you talk to to engineers that then get involved in some of those oil and gas integrity management projects and, and learning um, from that industry, they can really see the value actually in in uh, taking the learnings from the oil and gas offshore industry, and they can see how it can be applied into into the offshore wind industry, um, and really make those technical improvements and advancements in in offshore wind, which is a I guess a, a much newer industry. So I think I think in a, in an organisation like Kent, where where we've got um, engineers working across both markets and both industries, I think is really valuable in in developing those skill sets. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I think in our team, a lot of our really senior structural engineers are almost purely oil and gas historically. And they seem to take to it like ducks to water, really. It's been amazing. I think you definitely get the impression that the energy transition is taking place. Hard to quantify if it's happening at the pace that we need, but it's certainly going to have to become more aggressive if we're going to meet net zero targets. How do you feel about the challenge? And what do you usually say? To people who are perhaps a bit more sceptical skeptical about whether we need to do this? Um, I actually think the sceptical are kind of now in a bit of a minority, and I think most people can see that something needs to change. I think what's not universally agreed is what that energy mix looks like or needs to look like. And I, I, don't, think, I don't actually think there's a single answer, and I, I don't think it'll be the same for every country. Um, and we could probably talk all day about what it should look like in the UK, but I think what recent events have, have really shown us is that we need to be mindful of the volatility of the energy market, um, and ultimately we we need to accelerate the energy transition. Um, currently, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of energy. Um, year on year, renewables are taking up more and more of the energy share, um, and we just need to make sure that that trend continues. Where do you see Kent playing a role in the energy transition? So I think probably a bit of a cliche answer, but I, I kind of, I, I'd kind of say everywhere. Um, there's no silver bullet for energy transition, and I think change needs to come from within the hydrocarbon industry as much as it does from outside. So undoubtedly, offshore wind is is going to be a huge part of energy transition going forward, but. So is decarbonising conventional power, decarbonising industry, uh, things like waste of fuel schemes, carbon capture, hydrogen production, synthetic fuels. Um, and excitingly, Kent have got experience and capability in all of those areas. So I think as a, as a company, we're really well positioned to, to work with uh, clients at all stages of, of the energy transition. Do you think it's something you'll be able to push in the US as well? I think so. I think so. I think there's, there's definite interest in in hydrogen. Um, there's, there's been some announcements in the news over the last few months that that uh, companies are looking at hydrogen schemes in in the US. So yeah, I think 
I think we'll we'll definitely see that energy transition um, happen uh, across the board in the US over the over the years to come. You and I are definitely quite offshore wind focused. You've got a senior role in the industry as a reasonably junior engineer. It's it's all I know really. But for people who are perhaps unsure about the industry and know less about it, could you perhaps give us an outline of the history of the industry? Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so I guess offshore wind has got its roots probably some 30 years back uh, with the first offshore wind farm, Vindaboot, in Denmark. Uh, so that wind farm had 11 turbines and, and generated a, a whopping five megawatts. Um, I think it's fair to say the, the growth kind of in the in the 90s after that point was a bit was quite slow and only a few more wind farms were were commissioned in Europe and the UK, um, mainly as pilot projects to test the technical feasibility of offshore wind rather than to provide any kind of utility scale elect- electricity. Um, but clearly the results were uh, were encouraging and it was actually the UK that uh, had held the first offshore wind leasing round in 2000, 2001. Uh, we then saw quite a lot of upscaling happening uh, over the next few years, um, and probably about 10 years after Vindaboo, Denmark commissioned a, a much bigger wind farm, 160 megawatts, um, and that was the first to use steel monopile foundations and the first to have its own uh, offshore substation. But I think it was really the UK that kind of led the charge and and the UK held its second leasing round in 2003 and then third leasing round in 2008. And I think this really set the the global scene for, for offshore wind leasing. And this is when we started to see the, the supply chain ramp up as well. And several turbine manufacturers entered the market with dedicated offshore wind turbines. So before then they were using onshore turbines with some modifications. Um, and we also saw the political landscape change quite a bit. So it was around this time that we saw the European Commission propose that 20% of energy come from renewables by 2020. And that kind of set the, the political motivation for countries to, to further invest in offshore wind. Um, and actually, as projects got bigger, further offshore, more complex, uh, the supply chain needed investment the cost started to rise quite a bit and, and offshore wind got quite expensive. Um, but then over the coming years, that began to stabilise and cost drops as um, as large projects came online, the kind of the experience built in the industry, developers became a lot more comfortable with project risks. And uh, as the supply chain developed, there, there became um, a lot more competition, so also driving down costs. And we also started to see quite a lot of industry collaboration through R&D projects, both in universities and and in industry, Uh, things that are really trying to uh, bring the price down, make designs more efficient, uh, cheaper to build, uh, increase levels of standardization. Um, And thankfully, that that trend has continued. Uh, I think it's offshore wind is is an industry where there's still huge amounts of, of research happening. And probably in the last few years, we've really started to see the global demand take off uh, with increased activity uh, in countries like China, um, especially China over the last couple of years, uh, Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and and obviously the US. And today, offshore wind is a truly scalable 
and competitive source of renewable energy. Uh, we've got around 50 gigawatts of installed capacity around the world, um, a quarter of that in the UK. And up until last year, the UK had the most installed capacity of, of any country in the world, um, overtaken by China now. But, um, but we held the, the top title for, for quite a number of years. Um, and you may have seen recent uh, announcements from the government uh, to get to uh, to 50 gigawatts by 2030. So, so um, quite a, an ambitious target. But I think we've still got an awful long way to go. Um, we need somewhere like 270 gigawatts by 2030 and 2,000 gigawatts by 2050 of offshore wind globally to meet net zero targets. So. Um, despite as kind of recently celebrating 30 years since the first wind shark, when offshore wind farms installed, I think we're, we're only really at the start of the industry, which in some ways is really exciting. It's huge, isn't it? It's very exciting. It's a fantastic industry to be getting into. Indeed. As you see it, from your point of view, what's the future of offshore wind? Is it a case of bigger is better? What do you think is the coming things to watch? So I... Interestingly, I listened to a podcast recently um, with Henrik Stiesdel, who's, I think, probably widely regarded as one of the, the foremost pioneering inventors uh, in the industry. And he, he reflected that he's been trying to predict the ceiling for turbine size for the last 35 years and has always got it wrong. Um, so we've got we've got 15 megawatt turbines today and, and probably if the curve continues, we'll see 20 megawatt turbines by the end of the decade, if not earlier. Um, and these are big. These are big machines. We're talking kind of 275 meter rotor diameter. So that's what kind of three times the size of, of Big Ben or the Statue of Liberty. Um, but I don't think anyone actually knows how big they will get. Um, but sure, turbines will get bigger. Um, wind farms will get bigger. So we're now kind of seeing one, two gigawatt developments um, happening. We'll see wind farms go into deeper water uh, and further offshore. So we'll see floating wind really take off over the next decade. I think we'll see lots of new markets emerging. I think there's huge untapped potential in markets such as South America, Australia uh, and Southeast Asia. I think we'll start to see a lot more happening in the O&M space. Uh, so the operations and maintenance space, I think we'll start to see a drive for kind of wind farm clusters and O&M hubs, um, which will be really important in kind of driving down those ongoing OPEX costs. Uh, I think we'll start to see or continue to see actually developers trying to maximize outputs from their assets. So reducing downtime, um, controller upgrades like power boost, life extension, we start to see developers exploring life extension quite at quite an early stage uh, of, the, of the wind farm life now. Um, I think we'll also start to see what the industry are terming power to X um, to using the offshore wind power um, to, um, to either uh, produce uh, kind of electric, electrical storage or um, for hydrogen generation which can then in turn be used for uh, making things like synthetic fuels. Um, so I think there's going to be lots of lots of developments and lots of innovations on the horizon. So it's going to be um, quite exciting to see how things develop over the next uh, decade or so.
a huge amount of innovation has come about to solve our future energy needs. The renewable sector is actually quite a crowded market. Wind, and I think particularly offshore wind, seem to pull the head of other sources of renewable energy, perhaps along with solar and nuclear. Why do you think it's come from a bit of a fringe technology to the behemoth that it is today? Um, so I guess wind and solar are, as I said earlier, kind of two of the cheapest forms of energy at the moment. And um, I think recent recent statistics that I read uh, recently uh, put wind and solar globally around 10% of energy production, uh, which is huge actually, um, up from two percent a decade ago um they're very scalable technologies um especially offshore wind where the resource potential is huge um i think the past decades have proven that with the right investment and political climate these energy sources can be produced very cheaply um and in lots of different geographies um and not only is it cheap energy it's renewable energy um and it will help us tackle climate change um, and get towards net zero. Um, so arguably what's, what's not to like about, about wind and solar, to be honest. And if you're selling the industry abroad, what's your elevator speech to whoever might be, you might be trying to convince to buy? Um, well, hopefully I don't need to do much convincing when it comes to, to offshore wind itself. Um, but in terms of an elevator pitch for, for Kent, I'd have to say that we've we've got some of the brightest minds solving some of the most complex challenges. Uh, we've got decades of experience in the offshore industry. Um, you name it, we've, we've done it uh, or even pioneered it. We've kind of been there from since day one. Um, and I think what, what we're most proud of is, is being a trusted partner uh, to our clients. We've, we've worked alongside a lot of our clients for, for years and years and years and um and really we're we're there to support them through the energy transition going forward yeah definitely definitely it seems like a company with a huge amount of experience in it it's about 20 years experience it's really nice to be getting into the ground floor of all of this perhaps it's just the industry that i'm in but i get the feeling that offshore wind has captured the imagination of environmentalists in the states can you maybe comment on why it feels like the industry has seen its time come? I think I think offshore wind and probably renewables in general have caught the imagination of Americans up and down the States, um, probably in the same way they have in the UK and, and many, many other countries for that matter. I, I think let's not forget that many of the US states, especially on the East Coast, have been gearing up for offshore wind for a long time now. Um, so now they've got the federal government backing. It's, I guess, it's kind of a huge inflection point in in the trajectory. Um, it's almost like everyone's been queuing up, and the doors have finally opened, and the rush has begun. Have you found everyone extremely welcoming? Have you met people who have wanted to meet you ten years ago, but have only just managed it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's definitely an element and a sense of that. Um, I think there's there's been a huge amount of hard work um, by lots of people in the industry um, gearing up for this moment, and I, I'm I've I think been quite blown away actually by how many people are involved in offshore wind already in the US. 
um, and how much experience some of them have, um, homegrown experience that is. Um, they've really been uh, waiting for this moment for, for quite a number of years. You've perhaps touched on it, but the perception is definitely that the US market seems to have fallen behind Europe and East Asia. Listeners perhaps aren't aware of the massive success of onshore wind and solar in the US. Why do you think offshore wind is lagged behind? Where do you see it going from now? Yeah, so so as things stand today, the US has uh, only 42 megawatts of installed offshore wind. Um, so that's only seven turbines in the water compared to probably just over 12,000 megawatts, so 12 gigawatts in the UK. Uh, China's at probably something like 20 gigawatts. And as I said earlier, globally, we're about about 50 gigawatts um, of offshore wind. But as you rightly say, the US is no stranger to renewables. Um, they have huge amounts of, of solar and onshore wind in the country. Um, I think they're getting on for nearly 200 gigawatts uh, of onshore wind and solar. So I think there's about two thirds onshore wind and about a third of that is solar. Um, so yeah, they, they're no strangers to renewables, but I guess ultimately it comes down to space and resources and scalability. You you need a lot of space for solar and for onshore wind. Um, and you need to put these farms where the resources are good and also close to the demand centers. Um, and there just isn't that space available in, in a lot of the states, uh, especially on the, kind of the east and west coasts. And that's where demand is high. Um, and that's also where state governments are wanting to decarbonize their, their energy systems. Um, but as I said, many of the states have been gearing up for uh, for offshore wind for a long time, um, but there just hasn't been the, the federal government support it needed to, to really get off the ground. I think it's it's fair to say that offshore wind has had a pretty bumpy start uh, in the US. Um, the first project that they tried to get off the ground was, was called Cape Wind back in the early 2000s, so pretty much at the same time as the UK was launching uh, its first leasing rounds. Um, but at that time, the US had no leasing regime. Um, and so the, the developer of Cape Wind was essentially allowed to pick uh, their own site in the ocean. Um, so this happened to be just off the coast of Cape Cod in Nantucket Sound. Um, and there was also no permitting kind of process established. So, so everything moved pretty slowly. Um, many years were spent assessing the environmental environmental impacts of the farm. Um, and ultimately there was there was kind of fierce opposition um, from a number of different areas, um, from fisheries for sure, but, but mainly actually from wealthy homeowners on the coast of Cape Cod who didn't want the project essentially in their back garden. Um, they didn't want to be able to look out uh, from their very expensive uh, houses on the coast and, and see an offshore wind farm um, and many of these homeowners had pretty uh, strong political connections so we're talking kind of families like the Kennedy family um, and the project essentially stalled um, there were lawsuits after lawsuits mounted um, and probably about 16 years after after they they tried to get the project off the ground the they surrendered the lease and and the, they scrapped the project, and I think that that really 
highlighted to the US um, that there needs to be a, a pretty strong political climate, both at the state level and the federal level, to make offshore wind happen um, and a really clear process for, for leasing and permitting um, and a, a process so that all stakeholders can have their say in, in, in how sites get chosen um, considering the environment, environmental impact, uh, impact on uh, communities, impact on other industries. Um, but things have changed an awful lot since then, and I guess over the last decade there's been a number of lease sales on the East Coast, kind of from Massachusetts down to, to North Carolina. Um, the last one actually took place back in February. Um, of this year with six new leases in the New York Bite region. Um, there'll be two more leases going up for auction uh, next month in Carolina Long Bay. Um, and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management have said that there will be um, another five leasing rounds around the country. So um, places like California, Oregon, uh, Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Maine, uh, and in the mid-Atlantic as well. So, so over the coming couple of years, there's going to be huge amounts of activity uh, in new leases. Um, but even today, as it stands, there's, there's probably over around 20 active federal leases uh, being developed. Um, so it feels like it's kind of really full steam ahead. Um, the Biden administration, uh, the beginning of last year, set a goal of achieving 30 gigawatts of installed capacity by 2030. Um, so that's from 42 megawatts today. Um, so, so quite a, an ambitious target. Um, many of the states have already mandated that utility providers purchase a certain percentage um, of their power from offshore wind. Um, end of last year, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management approved uh, the first two utility scale wind farms, so Vineyard Wind and South Fork. So they'll be uh, coming online, they'll be they're being built as we speak, and being they'll be commissioned in the next year or two. Um, so momentum's really building. Um, huge amounts of investment at the supply chain. It feels like every week there's there's another piece of news about manufacturing facilities or staging ports um, being invested in or being built. Um, but as I say, 30 gigawatts in eight years is a fairly huge task, um, and I think the jury's still out on whether that number will be achieved. Um, if it's not, I think they won't be far off it. Um, but the supply chain's kind of very much in its infancy. Uh, huge investments needed in transmission network. Um, and we haven't, yeah, haven't even talked about the Jones Act yet, which which adds uh, an extra layer of, of complication to the kind of transportation and the installation of offshore wind. But I think the the momentum is is firmly here. Um, and I think it's here to stay. Definitely, yeah. So for listeners, the Jones Act is an American piece of legislation that mandates that all goods transported between American ports must be American flagged, which causes uh, difficulties for us. Oh, sorry, go on, Ed. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Um, not, not just American flagged, but um, uh, American staffed, American owned. Um, and so that 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 throws up all sorts of complications um, when you consider how 
wind farms are generally built. Um, and so a lot of the, well, the, currently there are no Jones Act compliant uh, installation vessels. Um, so what the first wind farms will be having to do is use Jones Act compliant feeder vessels, if you like, to take um, the parts of the, the wind farm out to the site where a, um, an installation vessel will be waiting. Um, but that, that adds an extra layer of complexity and, and cost and time to the installation process. Um, but yeah, there are Jones Act compliant installation vessels um, being built at the moment, but it's going to take a few years before they're they're ready. Um, but it, but I think it gives you a sense of the scale that um, of how much investment is needed at kind of all stages of the supply chain, um, right the right the way through to through from designing it to uh, building it, installing it, maintaining it, um, and ultimately decommissioning it. Yeah, definitely, it's not easy. Do you do you feel that they're learning lessons from Europe's experience in offshore wind, which hasn't for sure. Well. Yeah, for sure. Um, they definitely are. Um, and as we've already said, it we've kind of been doing this for for thirty years now in Europe. So there are lots of lessons to learn from. Um, I guess lots of mistakes or lots of of things that uh, we would definitely do differently uh, over here in Europe. Um, so I think I think that's going to be the interesting thing about the U.S. market is quite rightly the U.S. want a, a large element of, of local content. Um, they want uh, to make sure that the industry really supports uh, local jobs, local communities. Um, but then there's an element of, of acknowledging that um, they have to learn um, from Europe and other parts of the world where where we've been doing offshore wind for for a good number of years now, um, to make sure that really they can, uh, I guess, m maximise um, their learning, um, and and make sure they take advantage of of the developments and the cost reductions that that we've managed to achieve uh, over here. Andy, I'm going to ask you the question that I think everyone's tuned in to listen to. What do you think is the future of Kent in the Americas? What's your plan? For <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> what I can really say is the time is now for offshore wind in America. Um, so the future's really exciting for us at Kent. Um, I think we're going to see lots of growth in the region for us, um, hopefully in a much extended presence out there. Um, and I think, yeah, a really exciting opportunity for the whole industry. Um, so I think it's definitely going to be one to watch in offshore wind. Definitely exciting times. I think, thank you very much for coming on to talk about offshore wind. We also try and use these as an opportunity to get to know people, pass on a little bit of advice and make it a slightly more human company. So I wanted to ask you, what's the one bit of advice that you might pass on to a future engineer or your younger self even? Oh, um, I guess if anything, um, I would say really step out of your comfort zone sometimes and take those opportunities that are offered to you in your career. Um, 
I, th- I think engineering is is so broad. Um, I think we should all be trying to explore engineering in its broadest sense. Uh, I guess there are so many industries in in engineering, so many different disciplines, so many subdisciplines. Um, I think when I've kind of been managing younger engineers or or mentoring them through uh, chartership, um, I've been really trying to promote that they get some experience or exposure in in all elements of engineering, uh, whether that's working in in different disciplines uh, or in different industries in some cases through secondments, um, getting involved in the commercial side, um, looking for opportunities on site when they arise. Um, and yeah, I think looking for those opportunities, um, some of which might seem a bit scary, but it's really time. Um, it really pays off to, uh, to put your hand up for some of those things. Uh, step out of your comfort zone. Do you remember why you got into engineering as a young student leaving school? Um, I don't know, actually. I I guess I've always been someone that's enjoyed taking things apart, learning how they work. Um, I've always I've always been into my DIY. Um, See, so yeah, I. I guess I, I really liked, I really enjoyed physics at school, but I kind of wanted to do something that was a bit more applied. Um, I wanted to do something a bit more with my hands. I appreciate that engineering isn't always uh, <laughs> like that. Um, um, lots of time spent behind a desk, but, but yeah, I, I really wanted to be involved in that problem solving element. Um, and that's some of the most rewarding, um, I guess, times of, of my career is, is being involved in projects where we're, um, especially in, in some of my integrity management projects that I've been involved in where we, we're really helping our clients and, and operators out of some, some fairly sticky situations, um, having to utilise some some extremely kind of innovative and complex um, engineering solutions um, to justify justify kind of installation or, or uh, commissioning um, when, when things quite haven't been built to specification. Um, and yet, yeah, so rewarding working with the range of stakeholders on the project, um, and and helping the industry develop as a whole. Definitely, Andy Malpas, our offshore wind lead. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. I've Pleasure. enjoyed myself. It's been great having you along. Great to talk. Thanks, Alex. Brilliant. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Spark Generation and want to hear more, please hit subscribe. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay safe.